is where we will start this morning. There isn't a handout. Just kind of waiting on everybody to get in and get settled. Romans 3. Um, while I'm waiting, I'm, I'm kind of winding down, and I realize we have not exhausted by any stretch the uh, topic of denominations, but I'm, I'm, you know, in my mind, I'm winding it down. And I think next uh, Sunday, it will kind of depend on what the outcome of today's Sunday is. Next Sunday, I'm going to do a... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Uh, we'll we'll cover the Jehovah's Witnesses and we'll deal with them separately. And then after the first of the year, I'm going to just, in my mind anyway, track kind of a similar theme from a different perspective and we'll get to that after the first of the year. This morning, I want to, and I've been, I've been kind of debating whether I should have just done the Jehovah's Witnesses and ended it and then addressed this question, but I didn't really want to tackle the question on Christmas Eve. And I'm not sure that I want to tackle the Christian the question now, um, because the nature of questions is they can be tricky. And then, in addition to that, our, our the theme of our Christmas banquet last night was the 1950s, and so I, since last night, I've given some serious consideration as to whether I should do a Sunday school lesson on the perils of candy cigarettes. Um, <clears throat> who would it? Who would have known that in an independent Baptist church, so many people would have thought, hey, I know what I'll, I, I know what I'll bring to the Christmas banquet, some candy cigarettes. And so, so I don't know whether to thank you for bringing them candy or to correct you for thinking about cigarettes at all. Not that I thought about both cigarettes and the wig. And I thought, the cigarettes is easy because I most certainly do not have the physique to wear a white t-shirt and roll my cigarette pack up in the sleeve. And then I thought, (laughs) hard to believe, I know. And then I thought that to wear the wig, the the only format under which the wig I could pull off would be if I read my letter of resignation with it. So, so, just chosen another path. Let's pray, and uh, we'll turn our attention to the, to the subject this morning. Father, it is always true that you are so far beyond our comprehension that it cannot be measured, and occasionally we are brought into confrontation with the reality of that difference. This is one of those times. I pray for grace for us. I pray that you'd help us to be wise, that you would expand our minds and create in us some degree of understanding. And certainly we ask for your help today in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so as I mentioned, and this, this is a, a question that really doesn't have anything to do with our subject of denominations, but it, but it is one that is kind of timeless in nature. 
And I really don't know who posed the question, so I'm not even sure that the person who asked it is even here this morning. But here's the question. Let me, let me read it to you as it came to me, and then we will tackle the subject. <clears throat> Doesn't the Bible say that everyone can know God by creation? Romans 1, 20 to 23. If that is true, does that mean you can get saved without the Bible or ever hearing the gospel? I just wonder how that correlates to the unreached people groups that missionaries talk about. The missionaries from Russia said that if people do not reach those unreached people, they die and will be given to eternal punishment. I think it is great people want to reach them. I just wondered if anyone can really be unreached given verses like Romans 1, 20 through 23. So what I intend to do is to try and answer, let me back up because there's no, there's no excellent, there's no answer I think that will satisfy us. But let me try and address the question that I think this question is, like this is a form of the very common question of what what happens to people who have never heard the gospel what happens to people who have never heard the gospel um, and that is technically not this question right if is anyone really unreached given verses like Romans 1 20 through 23 and the answer to that is a qualified no okay I mean the answer immediately to that question and I would say qualified because you have to bring other pieces of information is in. But it is a qualified no. No human being <clears throat> um, is genuinely unreached <clears throat> with reference to the existence of God. Um, that, is, that is the position that God takes, and that is the position that God argues. And then, of course, the questions from, flow from that. But, you know, so where does that leave people who have never heard about Jesus Christ, which really is, folks, one of the one of the most, I don't want to say challenging questions, but it is a challenging question that we ask, and and one that I think we can give I can give some principles that will guide us, but I don't think it's possible to answer the question concerning every individual because there's just things that we don't know about every single individual, and I'm not trying to waver there. Let me try to work through this, <clears throat> right? There are passages that indicate clearly and authoritatively that God wants people to be saved, that he takes no pleasure in people's death, that it is not really um, a delight to him to condemn people, either temporally in this world or eternally, um, but there are also passages, we'll look at a couple of them this morning, in which uh, God seems to take a somewhat different position. So there, there are complexities to this, and so I just kind of want to begin anything that I say to you with what is always my standard foundational premise in any conversation like that, like this, and that is Romans 11.33 which I have you in Romans 3. You don't need to turn to Romans 11.33, but I would beg you to become familiar with it, folks, and not just familiar with it in a vague sense, but familiar with it in the sense that you really 
you really anchor yourself upon it. Oh, the depth of the riches, the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. How unsearchable are his judgments. We just simply can't get to the end of the road. Or that's a bad analogy. We cannot get to the end of the thought processes that God has used in the way that he brings salvation to humanity and the people that he saves. His ways are past finding out. Paul deals with that as the definitive answer, folks. That is a summary of all that he has said in Romans 9, 10, and 11, in which he has tackled the subject of human responsibility and divine sovereignty and the plans and the purposes of God and the role that Israel plays in not just in their individual salvation, but in their place within the whole plan of salvation, that God's ways are past finding out and his judgments cannot be fully explored. And so... <clears throat> There is a sense then in which any human, human conclusions that we reach always need to be qualified with the disclaimer, but I don't know enough to get to the end of the subject. And so, so let me begin here with, all right, so let me, try and, let me try and address the question, and then seriously, if you're the person who wrote it, and I have not addressed it to, your, to the satisfaction of the question, or if you think I've missed the question, please... Uh, let me know about that. Again, you can do it just in the form of a, of a question that comes to me. You can send me an email. You can put it in my mailbox. And there may be questions off of what I say this morning that somebody else has, and I would again ask you to write them out and get them to me in written form for my own sake, uh, for, my, for the sake of my own memory and addressing them. And then it's possible that next week we'll come back and revisit the subject. So let me start here then, after starting with the Romans 11.33. Let me start with this. No person, no person in human history, ever in the history of the world since the creation of Adam, has ever been saved apart from the work, the work of Jesus Christ. Nobody has ever been saved apart from the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why I asked you to turn to Romans 3. Let's turn to Romans, or look at verse number 21. <coughs> of Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> Romans 3.21 <clears throat> But now, but now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So we have a testimony from the law and a testimony of the prophets of the righteousness of God. And now we have the manifestation of it apart from <clears throat> the law. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely, the idea there is graciously, by the grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the, sin, for, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, righteous, and the justifier, the one who makes righteous, him which believeth in Jesus. 
verse number 26. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. In making that point, that righteousness, that God's righteousness is evident through Christ, not the law, and that we are saved through the work of Christ and not the law, Paul puts it into historical perspective in verse number 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. How was Adam saved? How was Adam's sin remitted by the work of Christ? How was Abel's sin remitted by the work of Christ? If Cain had genuinely sought forgiveness, how would his sin have been remitted by the work of Christ? So this is going to be the sins of Adam and of Eve and of Abraham and of Isaac and of Judah and of Moses and of David and of Elijah, everybody. And of course, you know, folks, as you read through the Old Testament, some people have easily identifiable sins credited to them and others don't. It's pretty easy to put our finger on David and his sin with Bathsheba. It's a lot more difficult to put your finger on any sin that Daniel committed although Daniel counted himself a sinner, and the Bible would as well, and all of those people's sins are forgiven by the work of Christ. It has never been human works. There has never been another Savior. There has never been another method of salvation like the keeping of the law. It has always been and only been exclusively through faith and on the basis of the work of Christ. That brings me secondly to this, but, but, not everybody has had equal knowledge about the extent of the, of the work of Christ and about the identity of the person of Christ. So Adam is saved, folks, because Christ died for his sins. And Adam is saved because he has faith in that work. But what Adam knows about that work is minuscule compared to what you know about that work. It is not even in the same league. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15 gives to us what is called the first gospel, if you like the theologic speak, because... Theologians love to speak Greek and Latin. It is the Proto-Evangelium. The first gospel. And the first gospel is this. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So that is what Adam had. That all that Adam had as far as we know. And we go, well, did Adam have more? Well, it's entirely possible that Adam had more, which is one of the reasons it becomes a little bit challenging for us to speak 
authoritatively on what every human being's position may or may not have been because we don't know the condition of every human being. We know the Bible principles that govern God's conduct. So not everybody has equal knowledge about the person and the work of Christ. The Jews had an entire system, on the other hand. that foreshadowed God's salvation, and in the process of doing that, folks, doing it with equal authority was designed to demonstrate the inferiority of the entire system. No Jew was ever supposed to have full confidence in the keeping of the law. I mean, that's, when, and I'm going to have, ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 in just a minute, but no Jew was ever supposed to have come to the conclusion that the law saved him when built into the very practice of the law is the obvious nature, the obvious fact that the law is deficient in certain ways. That the Jews needed something that had, had much more durability to it than going through these men and this never-ending system of sacrifices. They should have figured that out. But they had more information than Adam had. And they weren't saved by keeping the law, they were saved by believing God. They were saved by believing what God had told them. So, so if, you, if you go ahead, and I, I, I don't know how much time I can give to this, but if you go to Hebrews chapter 10, and let's look at verse number 38. Now the just, those who are righteous, shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Because there is a faith, folks, that doesn't last. And this has been something that the writer, that the preacher in Hebrews has always been aware of and has always been addressing. There there is a testimony of faith that doesn't last. Verse 39, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, unto condemnation, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What are we talking about? We are talking about the kind of faith that saves a soul. Can you, can you give me an illustration of that? Well, as a matter of fact, I can. Verse number one of chapter 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now in the sacrifice, we would understand the work of Christ. What we don't know is how much Abel understood the work of Christ in that sacrifice. But Abel had a saving faith. How do we know that Abel had a saving faith? Hebrews 10.29, we're talking about saving faith. We're not talking about faith that builds buildings and builds monuments and goes to dark mission fields. That's a part of it, but we're talking about faith that results in the salvation of a soul. Abel had it. Abel had it. Verse number five, verse number five, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death 
and was not found because God had translated him before his translation. He had this testimony that he pleased God. He had faith. He had faith in God. He had the right kind of faith oriented in the, towards the right end. But, but what we don't know, folks, is how extensive his knowledge of the gospel was. Verse number seven, by faith Noah. <clears throat> what did Noah know? What did God communicate to Noah? Noah responded in faith to what God told him. Verse number eight, by faith Abraham. Now folks, when you go back, because Paul really belabors Abraham as the template of saving faith in Romans 3 and 4. And when you go back into the Genesis record of God's workings with Abraham, Abraham believed God. But look at the things that God said to Abraham. They are all things that clearly have to do with Christ to us because we know that. What we don't know is how much of that Abraham understood. So, all of that to, to, to reinforce this point, folks. Nobody in the history of the world will ever be saved apart from the work of Christ. But not everybody in the history of the world knows about Christ the way that you do. That is not the requirement. And in fact, folks, it is very good that that is not the requirement because if a Romans 11.33 is true, then we don't know everything. So if perfect knowledge of Christ and the cross and the death and the resurrection and three days in the grave, if those are the requirements to know those things as facts, to know all of God's counsels, well, nobody knows all of God's counsels, Romans 11.33. Look at Matthew chapter 12. And verse number 38. Matthew 12, 38, Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We want a sign. Here's the sign, the, red, the, the crucifixion and the tomb. But then notice how Jesus follows up. Verse 41, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Now we can go back, you can go back folks, and you can read the book of Jonah, you can read it in 30 minutes. What did Jonah tell them? Well, we know what God told us that Jonah told them. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. We know what the Ninevites did with that brief message. 
they repented and they covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes and begged God for mercy. They believed. The point that Jesus is making there is that the men of Nineveh believed when Jonas spoke and the scribes and Pharisees do not believe when Jesus is speaking and Jesus is greater than Jonah. And he makes the same observation there about the queen of Sheba in verse number 42. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold a greater than Solomon is here. She believed. Her faith acted upon the basis of Solomon's wisdom. And I'm greater than Solomon, and you don't believe me. So nobody is saved apart from the work of Christ, but not everybody has equal knowledge about the nature of that work in detail. Critical was belief about what God spoke to them, obedience to what God commanded them. This is what is the requirement. So for us, which by the way, the gospel is something, is a command given that men are to obey. I mean, the Bible doesn't speak about these things as optional. Men are commanded to repent. If they don't, that is called disobedience. By the way, men are commanded to be baptized upon their repentance. That's not treated as an option either. We tend to treat it as an option. It's not an option to God. Acts 10.48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Now, so right, so 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 to this point, here's where we are, folks. And I don't I don't think that any of us are going to have any great disagreements with this, right? Nobody is saved apart from the work of Christ. But not everybody in human history has equal knowledge about who Jesus is and what he's going to do. Now let me add an ins- not an insult, but something that in many people greatly offends their sensibilities. There are times in which God has communicated that he has no interest in saving certain people. For instance, Exodus chapter 9 and Pharaoh. You can turn there. You're familiar with that story. Exodus chapter 9 and verse number 13 And the Lord said unto Moses, Exodus 9.13, The Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Now notice verse 14. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, And of course, we know, folks, that one of the things that is going on in this passage is that both God and Pharaoh are simultaneously hardening Pharaoh's heart. God said, I'm going to harden his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And now here come the plagues upon his heart. 
He is not simply a casual, indifferent observer of these plagues. They strike him at the very core of his being. I'm going to send these plagues upon your heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. This is why I made you the Pharaoh. This is why I made you the most... I mean, if you look at the history books, folks, everybody will tell you that Egypt was never a world power. They were at best a regional power. Great, that's the history books. No quibble with the history books. They were the greatest political national power that Israel could find. And the reason that God raised up Pharaoh to that elevated status was so that he could demonstrate his own superiority to Pharaoh. Verse number 16, In this very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go? You still want to fight me? And folks, it becomes even more insistent when Paul begins to talk about it in the book of Romans in chapter number 9. But let me show you one other passage, and that is Judges chapter, or I'm sorry, not Judges, Joshua chapter 11. Right, now this is this is a judgment on my part. Right? I'm not saying that it's factual. I'm just saying this is a judgment on my part. The Judges chapter Joshua chapter eleven verses nineteen and twenty are two of the most terrifying verses in the Bible to me. Let's just look at verse number 18. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Joshua eleven eighteen. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city <clears throat> that made peace with the children of Israel. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel. Save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, Right? We know about the Gibeonites and their deception. They made peace. They became servants. All the other they took in battle. Why is that? Verse number 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. It was, this was what the Lord wanted to do. To harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. That he might destroy them utterly. And now I'm going to translate the word. That they might have no supplication. That they might not have a prayer. 
It would not cross the mind of one person in those cities to go, you know what? This is not, not going to go well for us. I think the thing to do is to beg for mercy. Nobody thought that. And folks, I just, there's, I mean, it's just, it, you, you, I mean, I'm not saying you can't fight with the verse because, you know, I've been doing this 40 years and we can fight with any verse. But the verse says what it says. God is not being bashful about what's going on and who's behind all this. Not one city made peace because God hardened their hearts that they would go to battle because God didn't want anybody to ask for mercy that he might destroy them. That he might destroy them utterly and that they might have no favor but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Now that does not sit well with our sensibilities perhaps but it is the clear word of Scripture. So what about them that have never heard? Well, again, it, it, it just really is a lot more of a complicated issue on both sides than it is to just come up with a, with a very brief blanket answer to cover. Turn then, if you would, to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and let's start in, well, let's start in verse number 12. Acts 14, 12. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. They called them Roman deities. Which when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out, saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you. We're just like you, we're not gods. And preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities <clears throat> unto the living God which made heaven <clears throat> and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, <clears throat> right now we're, now we're starting to turn the corner to the question, what about, is anybody really unreached in light of Romans 1? Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. And at this point, folks, let me <clears throat> introduce to you a, a couple of really critical comment, concepts that we probably are familiar with, but that are really important to understood, to understand. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 7, or Acts 14, verse number 17 
and as we'll see in a minute in Romans chapter 1, we are dealing with what we call general revelation. General revelation. The knowledge of God that comes to men through what they can see in the world around them. And general revelation is not an inferior knowledge. It is just a different form of knowledge. So that here's what Paul preached to these people who were calling him Roman deities. I'm just a man. Now, until, and I, I would understand Paul's pivoting point there, the earthly ministry of Christ, Now, God used to just leave people to their own ways. But he always maintained a witness. Really? Yes, it rained. And the crops grew. And everybody could see that. And as we know from Romans chapter 1, right, upon that basis, every human being, folks, knows that the world exists because some superior being made it. The knowledge of the gospel, by the way, is called special revelation. And the difference between general revelation and special revelation is special revelation is God's explicit communication. Genesis 3.15. Right? Adam lives in a world that God has made. Adam has... General revelation. He's living in the garden that God made. Adam has special revelation. God talked to him. Abel has general revelation. He's living in a world God made. He has special revelation. He knows that he's supposed to offer a sacrifice. So with that, let's turn our attention to Romans chapter 1. Where does this leave then... Humanity. And, and I'm not saying, because this question doesn't, the, the, the question that was asked, right, is, and I'm not trying to flatter the person that asked it, the, per, the, the question that is asked is a better question caliber of question than what about those that never hear? Because the specific caliber of this question is are they really unreached if they have general revelation? And the answer to that is a little bit more complicated. Are they genuinely unreached? They're not ignorant of the knowledge of God and for that reason they may very well be condemned. That's where it leaves them. Everybody has a basic knowledge of deity that is adequate to condemn everybody. The flip side of that, well, can they be saved? I'm not trying to be evasive, folks. I'm just saying that individually, we don't know. Part of the answer hinges upon what people do with the general revelation that they have. God is not difficult. 
He's not being difficult in Romans chapter 1. He's not saying, now here am I and you can see that I exist from the world around and if you try to find me, I don't want anything to do with you, nah, nah, nah. He never says that. And in fact, Paul preaches in Acts chapter 17 really quite the opposite, that he's very close to anybody and anybody that goes looking for him has a really good chance of finding him. That's not the issue of Romans 1, 20, of Romans 1 folks. The issue is not that people are sincerely looking for God and can't find him because they don't know enough. The problem of Romans 1 is that they know everything they need to know there is a God and they reject even that. So, Romans chapter 1, let's start in verse number 18, a statement of fact. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Here is a statement of fact. And if I can just point out the grammar there that it is, not being, it is not being dealt with in the future tense. Paul does not say the wrath of God will be revealed because he is not saying the wrath of God will be revealed. He is saying the wrath of God is revealed. It is being revealed at this very moment. Because men are suppressing the truth. That is what the word holding the truth means. In unrighteousness, they are suppressing the truth. And for that reason, the wrath of God is being revealed. And, and be, is being revealed. And if I could jump ahead, because this is not really the, the tension, the intention of, of the, to the question, but if you could read a little bit further down in Romans chapter 1, beginning in, uh, let's just say, verse number 23 or 22. <clears throat> The world that we are inhabiting, the celebration of homosexuality, the celebration of transgenderism, the absolute insistence that we are the unreasonable ones for calling anybody's biological gender into question. Folks, that is the wrath of God. That is the wrath of God. If 40 years ago we used to preach that if we didn't get our act together and start listening to God, he was going to judge us. This is the judgment. It is the judgment. It doesn't just bring the judgment. It is the judgment. God just says to mankind, right? You think you're so smart. You can read, you can read through the sequence there in the passage. Not the one. You think you're so smart. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to let you go. You think that you're so brilliant? Fine. You just go. See where it takes you. And this is where it takes us. This is what we get. And God has just simply gone, you know what? Like Pontius Pilate, I'm going to wash my hands of you folks. <clears throat> have, have at it. Knock your lights out. And that's what you got. That's what the world looks like. It is the judgment of God. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 1, verse number 18. The wrath of God is being revealed because men are suppressing the truth. And how do I know that they're suppressing the truth? Verse number 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. So God is not, folks, in this world of general revelation, 
right? Here comes the rain and the crops grow. And it's not like God is just over there somewhere doing something else. This is active on the part of God, Romans 1.19. It is basic knowledge of the existence of God because God is working it towards that end. That which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them for because, verse 20, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. What I can't see can be explained in large part by what I can see. His eternal power and Godhead so that, verse number 20, they are without excuse. So there is no excuse. Right, so let's just pose the question. Right? Again, it's not really technically the question that was asked, but let's pose the question because it's always the question that comes up. What if somebody goes, but, but they never heard about Jesus? What does God respond? What does the text of Romans one twenty say, folks? Is that an excuse? I never heard. Is that an excuse? Please somebody help me. No, it's not an excuse. They have no excuse. That's our, our, our now. I'm not saying that our sensibilities aren't raging. I'm just saying that the text of Scripture is very clear. Don't have an excuse. Don't have an excuse. By the way, let me just point this out to you. Right? This is right? just, just for our own little edification here. <clears throat> In the middle of verse number 20, the things that are made. The things that are made. One Greek word is a Greek word that gives us the English word poem. The universe is God's poem. By the way, the only other place that the word is used is in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 10, where Paul says, we are his, King James Bible reads, workmanship. We are his poem. We are his poetry. Right? God has written to the world a poem, the universe. Look at the beauty with which it functions. What are men doing? They are suppressing knowledge of him. They're not denying the existence of the universe or the fabulous working of the universe. They're denying the creation of the universe and denying one who creates it. And for that reason, they have no excuse. They have no excuse. They're without excuse. So again, part of the technical answer to the question, are there really any unreached people? Not to that extent, not in that sense. Because everybody lives in the same universe and everybody can clearly see the hand of God. All right, verses 22 and 23, and I gotta, I gotta hurry up here. Verses 22 and 23 kind of explain the mechanics of that rejection. What does rejection look like? Number one, we think we're smart. We think we have the answer. And, and this is right, not, not the existential answer to every question, but right? I mean, I didn't catch the whole interview, but a number of years ago, one of our top-tiered evolutionary scientists, somebody said, 
So are you rejecting the existence of God? And he's just going, well, I'm just making the argument that God is not necessary to explain the existence of the universe. He's, He's not necessary for the earth to be here. Professing themselves to be wise, right? What happens is the world looks like it does. Verses 22 and 23. Okay? Verse number 21 which I I missed and I apologize, in their suppression of the knowledge of God, they did not either glorify him or thank him. They did not acknowledge him as God and they did not thank him for what he had done. Which, right, at the the fundamental nature, folks, right, at at the most fundamental level, I mean, one of the basics of Christian practices is to thank God for the food that we eat. This is one of our most, right? This is one of the most, right? This is like Christianity 101. Not not some mindless mechanical saying of grace at a meal, but the recognition that our food comes from God and gratitude Him for it. That is usually expressed in some form of prayer. This is what Paul said in Acts chapter 14. Hey, look, man, God makes it rain. The crops grow. Everybody's happy. We go... Everything came from God. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the hands that prepared it. We enjoy it because of your bounty. Right? This is gratitude, kind of the, 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 basic, the basic formula. So <clears throat> I can't get into it this morning, or I wasn't planning to get into it this morning, but Romans chapter 1 teaches the world that God exists, according to Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse number 14, the world not only knows that God exists, the world knows that God is moral. And the world knows that God is moral because the world has its own dimension of morality. Distorted and twisted, yes. Right? But what's going on in our world, folks, are accusations not about the absence of morality, but the presence of immorality whether that be some social justice issue, right, going all the way back into history, whatever the nature of it is, right, we're talking about something that has a moral dimension to it. I'm being mistreated. This group of people is being mistreated. This race of people has been mistreated. This class of people has been mistreated. Where did that moral dimension come from? It is something that God embedded into our humanity to remind us of his existence. And it is being suppressed, his existence. Now, right, so let me add one more factor to that. In our era, in the New Testament church age, what is different is that God wants all men to have access to special revelation, if I can put it that way. All men have access to general revelation. The sun shines everywhere in the world. The rain falls everywhere in the world. The crops grow everywhere in the world. God wants the gospel to go everywhere in the world. And God wants everybody to hear the gospel of Christ. That does not mean that everybody will be saved, but it certainly does mean that everybody could be saved. But what ends up happening, folks, is that it adds an additional layer to their guilt if they reject. 
Where does that leave people who are unreached? Well, they have no excuse. But the church has been charged with getting the gospel to them. Anyway, God's position is not really that seeing the sunrise and watching the rainfall is necessarily enough. But our experience with God and what God indicates is that if somebody goes seeking him on the basis of that, genuinely seeking him, that he will respond positively to that, favorably to that. But just to have that all by itself, certainly in our world, is not adequate. Everybody is to have the gospel. And as our young lady from Russia did point out, right? There, right, there are those who go, there are those who send, and there are the disobedient. So right, those are the options. The gospel is to be preached around the world. God wants people to have both. <clears throat> And so, right, if I, if I could just remind us, folks, again, this is, this is reflected in the question, right? Because the question is somewhat suspicious of talking about people being unreached. A more accurate term would be unreached with the gospel, but they're not unreached with the existence of God. And a passage like Romans 1.20, folks, is designed to orient us around the universality of human condemnation, not about the universality of salvation, but the universality of human condemnation. All human beings are condemned. <clears throat> All humanity became condemned in, in Adam's fall. All humanity can see the existence of God in the world around them. Unfortunately, much humanity rejects God in spite of that. So there are multiple, when, when, when God brings judgment to people, folks, ultimate judgment to people that results in their condemnation to the eternal state, God has been very clear. They have no excuse. They have had access to enough information to have developed a favorable outlook on how they got into the world to understand that God has acted favorably towards humanity. Now again, does, does that mean that all of those people prior to that were saved? I, I just would argue that we don't know, and we don't know. But, okay, I'm going to stop there. I'm